we uh, are now in the part of the day that does not deal with unemployment benefits. Um, for some of you, that will be um, a, a nice variety. For others of you, you may not care less. Um, but we hope you find this information helpful and interesting. So um, most of you know me, I'm Sharon Dietrich. I'm with um, Community Legal Services in Philadelphia. And my colleague, Jamie Gullen, will help present the session as well. Um, thank you for being with us this afternoon rather than watching the Phillies preseason game, which I must admit that I'm tempted to do. But no, we are going to talk about Act 83. In other words, Oops, I got muted, but now I'm unmuted. Okay, um, let me see where my um, PowerPoint is so that we can get started. Hmm. Bear with me, folks. PowerPoint, there we go. And we are starting a slideshow. All right. Um, can you folks see my PowerPoint? Give me a verbal yes or no, guys. No. No. Okay. All right. Um, sorry, bear with me. This always seems like it's gonna be so easy until you go to do it. Uh, <laughs> PowerPoint, where are, there you are. All right, now you can see it, right? Um, unless I hear from you that you can't, I'm assuming you're gonna see it. Um, uh, please do tell me if you're not. I did a whole presentation at CLS recently in which I only found out at the end nobody saw what slides I had dutifully put together. Okay, so talking about Act 83 today. Um, Act 83 uh, is what might be considered Clean Slate 2 uh, because essentially it expanded the original Clean Slate most notably by getting rid of the requirement that um, your fines and costs have to be paid in order to get your case sealed. Um, that was a requirement for both um, petition filing and for uh, automated clean slate filing. Uh, it is no longer the requirement as of the effective date of um, Act 83. And uh, the law went into effect for petition uh, filing in December, Jamie will cover that at the end of the presentation, but basically the petition part is in play now. Um, the automation play uh, part is not yet uh, because the Administrative Office of Pennsylvania Courts has been given um, a, a good deal of time to implement the computerization of that. So that won't be coming around until October or so, which of course means um, if you have clients who are going to benefit from this, you may be wanting to, to file petitions for them before the automation comes around. 
Um, so again, basically the, the key requirement from, from our perspective about this change in the law is that fines and costs are no longer a barrier. That is the part that we actively worked on. Um, the other two parts are great too, um, providing that full acquittals are automatically expunged and pardon cases are automatically sealed. Uh, and um, Jamie will talk with you about what that means. Uh, I use the word automatically as opposed to automation because these two steps, steps are not being done through automation. Uh, and then finally, we'll stop start by, um, we'll end by talking about Clean Slate 3, um, which we hope is on the horizon and will really uh, get us going with um, uh, getting uh, felonies sealed in Pennsylvania for the first time. So very exciting that that's uh, a possibility. So um, before I move on, um, I want to make clear from the jump, uh, the fines and costs uh, that no longer are a barrier that does not include restitution. If you owe restitution, you continue to not be able to seal your case until and unless um, that restitution is paid off, which is not nearly as simple as it seems like it should be. So a great deal of what I'm going to talk about today is, is the restitution piece and how to get clients through that. So, um, this may sound like it's not that big of a deal, but it's actually a rather huge deal. And I bet that any of you who do um, expungement and sealing have encountered fines and costs as a problem. Uh, Mike Collender, our former colleague who's now with the Philly DA's office, did some analysis of data about um, what otherwise eligible misdemeanor convictions were being precluded by the requirement that fines and costs be paid. And the results were really astonishing. Well, maybe astonishing, maybe we all kind of know this, but you know how data, uh, when you actually generate it, actually is, is very powerful. That's what Mike's work did here. And Mike found that half of the cases in um, Pennsylvania, the misdemeanor convictions um, that were otherwise eligible, you know, they were the right kind of cases, 10 years had gone by, et cetera. Um, half of them were being precluded because people still owed the court fines and, and costs. So um, that's even a, a higher rate in Philadelphia. It's 75%. And so a lot of people simply were not benefiting from clean slate or from petition-based filing because they owed this debt. And um, of course, this is kind of a, a, a cart before the horse situation if you're demanding people to pay their, their court debt before they get an expungement or ceiling, often they're not in a position to do that because they just don't have the money because they're underemployed. Um, the Philly courts did a study about 10 years ago now, um, but because it's the court study, it's fairly useful um, of who owed court debt to it. And they found that 70% of the people who owed court debt were unemployed and impoverished and basically could not afford to pay that debt. So if you have the requirement that people pay the court debt to get their case sealed, it means a lot of them don't even have that option. Um, so again, um, Act 83 uh, was meant to, to deal with that barrier. The racial implications of this are, are quite um, uh, market, market as well. 
uh, when you think of of black people as being 19 percent of the state population um, and that being a benchmark here, they uh, actually get a relatively high percentage of arrests sealed by clean slate, um, probably because of being over um, arrested um, with cases that don't go to conviction. But then when you look at misdemeanor convictions, um, they are underrepresented with only 12% of the misdemeanor convictions that have been sealed by automation. So uh, we think that uh, this change uh, to the rules is going to um, iron out or at least um, ameliorate that racial disparity. So that is why um, both in terms of the, the numbers and the racial impact, um, we think that Act 83 uh, is, is quite important. Okay, this is the exact language in the law now um, that replaced the language that said you had to pay all of your court um, obligated financial obligations. Um, now it says, um, before you can file, you must make payment of all court-ordered restitution and the fee previously authorized to carry out limited access and clean slate limited access provisions. Um, that latter part is really vague. And um, the reason is that the courts wanted it to be vague. The courts insisted that that latter language about the fee previously authorized to carry out limited access um, be in the bill was because they wanted to continue to receive the $8 that they get through judicial computer project um, fees. And they did not want to emphasize that they were the ones that are getting the fees. Um, so instead we have this really vague language, but that is what it is meant to mean. Um, do the county courts know that? I certainly hope so. I can't guarantee you that. Um, I spoke with ALPC about whether they were putting out guidance to the courts, and basically the answer was no, there was none needed. So um, I hope your courts are not confused about that and refusing to uh, seal cases because they don't know what that means. Um, if they do, please reach out to me, um, and I'll be happy to help and also to report to AOPC if guidance is needed on this issue. But essentially that is what that language means, that $8 um, judicial computer project fee. Um, so as I said, um, this language, which replaces the previous language requiring all fines and costs to be paid has gone into effect. Um, hopefully your courts know that that is the case. Um, please let them know if, if they don't, since AOPC has not. Um, we have changed the expungement generator, so it's taking care of the language that gets um, put into a petition. So it basically only says whether uh, or not um, restitution is owed. Oh, and by the way, um, AOPC also meant this language to mean that um, that $8 only had to be paid if the person also owed restitution and would be making a restitution payment anyway. So it's not necessary um, for every defendant just to pay that $8 to get their case sealed because that would still be a, a massive um, barrier to, um, to 
uh, automated sealing of cases uh, for the reasons we'll talk about in a minute, because people would have to find a way to pay off that $8, but potentially have to pay a lot of other money before they could even reach that $8 payment. And I know that sounds kind of um, confusing, but we'll look in a, at a minute as to why that would be a problem. Okay, um, so of course we would prefer if the language um, did not require restitution to be paid, but um, the General Assembly was not going there. Um, because uh, of all of the various fines and costs, restitution has a sort of sacred place for them as being the thing that is owed to victims. Um, from my perspective, there are victims and then there are victims. Um, arguably, the Department of Human Services is a victim in a welfare fraud case, and that might mean that somebody would have to pay back um, you know, thousands of dollars of restitution before they could get their case sealed. Uh, but um, they're all considered restitution. If, if restitution is what the court order said and, and what appears on the ALPC docket, we'll look at a docket in a minute. But in any event, the good news is, unlike some other uh, states around the country, Pennsylvania does not enter restitution orders as a matter of course. And, you know, that makes sense because let's say you have a, a drug felony. Well, a felony wouldn't currently be sealable, but let's say you have a drug possession case. Who, who is the victim? There is really no victim. So you wouldn't order restitution. Um, but still, it's kind of remarkable that only about a quarter of the cases in Pennsylvania have restitution ordered. So hopefully it means those other 75% will um, sail on through. Now, for those that do have restitution that is owed, they are really in danger of not being helped by Act 83. And that is because you cannot just walk into um, a courthouse and say, I'm here to pay my restitution and I don't want to pay anything else. Um, the law actually allocates payments to various different court fines and costs. And so there are other things that, according to the law, uh, the payment has to be put toward before the restitution can be paid. So that is where this all starts getting complicated. Okay, um, so this is um, one of your standard looking um, court fines and costs um, listing that you'll find on the back page of a docket that you pull up out of um, CPCMS, the court's uh, online um, criminal record system. Uh, you're probably all familiar with this. You, you may not pay a lot of mind to the specifics here, but the specifics here become much more important um, now that we have this uh, piece of the law that um, actually uh, distinguishes restitution from these other things. But oops, but even um, even uh, as I said, uh, if your person owes restitution, um, you, you're not only going to need to know about the restitution, but you're going to need to know about these other things as well, because some of these are going to have precedence um, for payment over your um, client's debt. So this page will show how much restitution is owed, although on my screen here, um, the number that I nicely circled the balance is um, 
is hidden by all of your uh, lovely faces and your your Hollywood squares there, but it's there. Um, and it also shows what's owed in all the other categories and what all the other categories are. So um, this is something you're going to want to consult in any case where you're trying to figure out, is this person eligible to get their cases sealed? Um, do they owe restitution? And if they do, what about their other debts? So um, this is the sort of thing you may never have cared about before, but in some ways is the most important thing that I have to say to you today, um, which is how these priority of payments work. And um, this is called often the unified distribution schedule. And um, sometimes you'll, you'll see a freestanding copy of it somewhere, but you can also find it codified here in the Pennsylvania code. Uh, and this um, policy dictates, um, except where there's a little bit of discretion, how um, a, a, a single payment gets divvied up between all of those different um, categories of fines and costs that are on the list there and the person owes the money for. And as you can see, they range from the sublime to the ridiculous. Um, access to justice, something that's near and dear to our heart, that's a whole dollar and 50 cents here. Um, OSP, which stands for, um, well, it, it means supervision fees. I don't know what OSP actually stands for offhand, but um, here there's almost 600, looks like $625 uh, between those two listings of, of supervision fees. Um, so any number of them might have to be dealt with depending on um, this list of priority of payments. So. Um, starting out with the thing that is highest on the list, um, collection agency fees. Um, that really stinks because they can be really high. Um, there's a, a limit in state law that collection fees can only be 25% of the overall debt, but the overall debt can be quite high. So that can be a high number. Going back to our little example here, um, it looks like there was originally a collection fee of $945 on this um, account. And then it looks like there was a lawyer involved. These are the, um, the numbers down here uh, at the bottom of the list of fines and costs. Um, it looks like a lawyer was involved and they put another um, $1,375 on it. Um, so it possibly if this had not been satisfied, the person would be in a position where they'd be arguing that they didn't have to pay $2,200. And of course that would really stink. Now this all matters because the legislature did not get rid of this whole scheme of the order of payments. Um, I'm not sure it really occurred to them, um, but in any event, ALPC says this is still in effect. So um, if somebody owes restitution, they need to get to the restitution here on step three of the payment attribution. So the first thing they're gonna need to do um, is satisfy the collection fee. Um, now you can see here that this person did satisfy the collection fee because there was some kind of an adjustment. My guess was that the person's case was taken out of collections by the Philadelphia courts. Um, and note that the language for collection agencies is not absolute. It says that it is the top priority where the private collection agency has secured the funds. 
in Philadelphia, the collection agencies get a lot of cases that they take into collections, but they don't do a darn thing to actually um, try to make the collections. So um, what we would do it at CLS in one of these cases where there might be a case in collections is we would ask the courts to get it back from collections. The person would like to, to have the authority to pay directly to the court. Um, and our court administration would agree to that. I, I'm not sure what might happen in your county, but that's a tip of something you can do to, to make this more affordable um, to a, a client is look at, um, can you eliminate any collection fees by recalling the case from collections? Um, even if the person has um, walked into the courthouse to pay the money on their own, it's not a collection fee that's that's coming to, to get the money from them. Um, According to AOPC, if that money gets transmitted to a collection agency to process, um, they may take the position that they've satisfied this condition, which is, of course, outrageous um, and uh, is why it's it, you would argue against that. But it's why it would be best to get the case back from collections if that's something you can do. All right. Number two on the list, crime victim compensation funds. Let's see where that is on this list. Crime victim compensation funds right here, $35. Um, so at least that's not um, a huge part of this debt. But um, if your client owes restitution, they're going to end up paying that $35, um, even if they did not have any collection agency fees. But that's going to be a predicate to um, finally paying off some of their restitution. Okay. Restitution is number three on the list. And if you could just pay 100% of your restitution, you would be fine because they would take all the rest of the payment that didn't go into the collection agency fee or the crime victim compensation fund, all the remainder would go to restitution. Now, here is the hitch. The um, unified distribution schedule says at least 50% of any additional payment. Now, this is really disheartening because um, let's say a place has adopted that only 50% of any additional payment is going to go towards restitution, and then it's going to go to the rest of these things further on down the list, um, which basically is anything else um, that's on this whole list. So that would include the supervision fees, the $625 of supervision fees. Um, you you hopefully you're not going to find yourself in that posture because it would kind of require that they pay off everything at the same time because any payment they made, uh, if the county policy is only 50% goes to restitution, um, they're never going to quite catch up until they pay everything else. And then Act 83 doesn't really help them that much. Um, now, fortunately, David Price at AOPC has told me that he thinks that only about half of the counties have adopted a policy that's less than 100% of restitution goes to, or less than 100% of that payment goes to restitution. But you are going to have to figure out what happens in your county. Um, and then just to round out the list here, the Judicial Computer Project and the Access to Justice fee um, are number four on the the pecking order, um, a whole bunch of other things, including supervision fees are number five, and then number six is everything else. 
So that is how a person's $50 payment gets divvied up into um, all of these many other little pots so that presumably all of the things on this um, list are, are having some money put towards them and payment. Okay. Um, we talked about the, the no less than 50% um, shall be, go to restitution. Um, clearly that is discretion discretionary at the local level. Um, and like I said, AOPC says half the counties do do 100%, in which case none of this matters again, um, because if there's no collection agency fees that have to go against them, then your clients only have to pay off their restitution and the $35. But um, if it's less than 100%, then you're stuck in this conundrum of um, how do you get all this money paid down so that restitution is zeroed out. Um, here are some strategies for um, what you might do if you are in a county where there's not 100% um, allocation of payments to restitution that, at step number three. Um, the thing that would have the most um, systemic um, response would be to um, ask the president judge of the court administration to do a system-wide change to send 100% of that payment to restitution. And um, you are likely to get some um, allies on that, um, victims' rights organizations, the DA's office, potentially. There are a lot of people in the Commonwealth that are concerned about restitution and, and not enough about it being... Uh, and concerned that not enough is being collected. So you might find some people to join you in that kind of a request. And that would be a win-win for both our clients and their clients or the, the victims that they're concerned about. Um, but um, another strategy might be to ask the sentencing judge to change the order to 100% restitution payment. Um, I know most of us do not like to go into criminal court, and indeed, maybe there's some restrictions um, that uh, you would be concerned about. Um, it's not comfortable for any of us at best to be going to sentencing judges and asked for orders to be changed. Maybe that's something that your, your public defender could do. Um, but both um, David Price at AOPC and um, Andrew Christie at the ACLU, who is the biggest um, uh, advocate side um, expert in the state, they both agree that this is something that can be done. And then finally, like I mentioned, look to minimize the collection fees if there are some on the docket. Can you get the case pulled from collections? Can you argue with the clerk's office that, in fact, um, the collection agency did nothing to get this money and therefore should not be um, getting a piece at step one on the cascade? All right. Um, the next um, part we'll move on to here is with Jamie and the um, uh, issues around acquittals and pardons. Um, but before we get there, since these are such separate topics, I will take any questions about um, the restitution piece that we've just gone over um, in case you want to know anything more in depth about um, the priority of, of assigning payments or um, whether you want to know it or not, whether I've been unclear about something and you are seeking some clarity. So 
I'll take a breath and see if there are any questions for the chat. Sure, and there's one question already in the chat from Deborah Steves about whether um, the fines and cost elimination applies to expungements, such as those for those over, over 70. Um, I think by its terms, it probably does not because the language is sealing, right, Jamie? That is used in the, the language. Um, so, only, okay. <laughs> so only situations where a, an expungement might be sealed rather than expunged, um, which even under auto sealing, um, the only cases that come to mind are diversion cases potentially. Um, might be sealed even though um, fines and costs are owed. Uh, it remains to be seen how AOPC is going to apply this language to those types of cases. Um, but again, um, we're talking expunge, we're talking sealing by clean site, not expungement. Um, Jamie, did you, um, I, I think you were potentially talking with with David Price about um, what their response would be to diversion cases. Did you get any sense of clarity on that? No, yeah, we were specifically wondering about ARD because it's a non-conviction and whether those would be sealed if fines and costs were owed. But um, since it's also still technically an open case, our guess is that AOPC is not going to auto-seal those, but uh, we're going to clarify that. Okay, I, I'm seeing the next question from Kevin is... Um, is the person's gun rights um, restored? Um, that really matters, I think, whether it's expunged or sealed, um, because under sealing, pretty clearly, they uh, their information is still available to law enforcement, and our understanding means that a sealed case um, will be taken into account under the um, the gun check laws, um, and really, we can't expunge hardly any convictions. Um, the example of the over 70s would be one, I guess, um, that could be uh, expunged and then may no longer, should no longer have any impact. But sealed cases, because they're available to, um, to uh, law enforcement will be eligible even though, will be available even though they've been sealed. Let's see what else we got here. Erica says, is there a proposed order or letter to encourage the president judge to allocate? Um, I'm working on something for the Philadelphia courts, Erica, uh, that I would be happy to share with everybody when it's ready. Um, I am looking still for the um, explicit authority that says they can do that. And even though David Price and, um, and Andrew Christie who almost never agree on anything have agreed that um, this practice can be done. Um, I don't see any explicit authority for that yet. So that's what's keeping me from, from finishing this up. If I can't find any, I will try to get um, to get AOPC to put something out. Um, we'll see whether we can accomplish that. They often are less than 100% um, enthusiastic about requests like that. Is the generator back up? I believe it is, right, Jamie? Yes, it should be working again. If you run into any issues, you can feel free to let me know. Yay, agreed. Um, we all um, have gotten very used to the generator. It, it feels like a, a massive imposition when it's not working. 
Thank you, Michael Hollander. And now Karen? Nate Vogel. Yes. Sorry. This is Kelly. If I could just um, interject myself again, I have to launch the next um, CLE poll box. So attorneys, please respond. It'll be up for two minutes. And Sharon and Jamie, please feel free to continue. Um, well, that ends my part of the presentation, unless there are any um, any other questions about the fines, costs, and restitution. Um, if there are not, I will turn things over to Jamie. And of course, you can still ask at the end of the presentation. Great. <clears throat> Thanks, Sharon. And to anybody who doesn't know me, I'm Jamie Gallen. I'm a supervising attorney in the employment unit at Community Legal Services, working with Sharon, uh, focusing on criminal records issues. I'm just going to go ahead and work on getting my screen shared now. Sharon, can you let me know? Can you see my screen now? I can, Jamie. Yes. You'll just want to put it in slide mode. From the beginning. Working on it. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Okay. So I'm going to start by talking about the automatic expungement piece for acquittals. Um, for many, many years, um, if you work in criminal records work, you've probably been in this situation too. You talk to clients or go out to do presentations for community groups and people would say, if I was found not guilty of something, why is it still showing up in the court records? And I would always say, well, that's a great question. You would think that, you know, you not only had charges dropped, but you were found not guilty. Why is this still part of your criminal record? Now, of course, clean slate already seals not guilty and acquittal cases, but uh, what this clean slate 2.0, as we call it, does is take things a little bit of a step farther um, to an actual expungement process uh, that fully destroys the record for not guilty and acquittal cases. Um, but the operation of it is a little bit more complex, so we're gonna have to see what actually happens in practice with the rollout. Uh, but just to cover the basics to start, um, this piece of, the, of Act 83 was added to good old 9122. Those of you who practice expungement law know that statute well. That's where all the different criteria for expungements live. Um, it's number four in that list now. And it applies specifically to judicial acquittals and not guilty verdicts. So if you're looking on a court summary and you see a not guilty or you see a judgment by acquittal, anything with not guilty or acquittal in the subject line, that's what you're going to be thinking of for whether this provision applies. But there is a caveat. It only applies to full and not partial acquittals. And the language that the law utilizes is that all the charges associated with the same conduct or criminal episode must be acquittals. So sometimes in a case you'll see, you know, there were several different um, potential victims involved and there are three or four different dockets and maybe somebody is acquitted or found not guilty on three out of four dockets, but on the fourth docket they're found guilty or they plead guilty to something. If it's the same conduct or episode, so if it has the same OTN number, the same arrest date, if anything is not an acquittal or not guilty within that, then it's not going to qualify for this. So it has to be an absolutely full acquittal for the um, criminal conduct or episode that occurred. 
And the law also says that uh, the expungement must occur no later than 12 months from the time that the acquittal or not guilty is entered. And we'll see in a minute about the procedures that have to go into place between the time when you're actually given that disposition and um, when the expungement is effectuated. So the procedure is that um, it's a very court-driven process, so it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out in the different counties, but the court basically needs to provide a notice in writing to the individual and to the Commonwealth, the DA's office, about the auto expungement. And then the DA's office has the opportunity to object within 60 days, but the only thing that they can object based on is that the person has not been acquitted of all charges. So they can't object because they said, well, it might say not guilty, but it was a domestic violence case and we wanna keep it on the record. That type of objection um, can no longer be lodged for these types of cases. The only valid objection is that the person was not actually acquitted of all the charges related to that criminal incident. If the district attorney objects, then the court can hold a hearing just on that issue, or the hearing can be waived by agreement of the parties. And there's also a provision in here, which is kind of interesting since the court's initiating this to begin with, but the court can also make its own determination that the case is not a full acquittal and is not eligible. So basically the way this is all written, it's gonna kind of rely on the court to instigate, but then um, basically as long as it's a full acquittal, there's no grounds for it to not ultimately grant, be granted. Um, so again, we're just kind of waiting to see exactly how this procedure is going to play out. Um, but one aspect that we have been told is that the courts anticipate they're only going to be doing this prospectively, which, you know, as frustrating as that might be, uh, given the kind of procedure that's laid out here, it's kind of understandable. Um, Clean City, which was originally done retroactively, of course, relied on computer queries to find eligible cases, making it possible to go back in time and seal 30 million cases. But in a process that's going to require written notice and objections, um, it was the court's determination that uh, prospective only was the only way to be able to do this. Um, so this is just a practice tip associated with this issue. When we talk about automatic expungements that are happening without an individual taking the step of filing a petition themselves, it raises a potential flag or concern, um, especially for our immigrant clients who may need records of their cases for immigration and or citizenship purposes. Um, even for arrests that result in acquittals or not guilties, that paper trail can be important. Um, and so the best practice, you know, and we do this too when we're filing expungements for clients who are not citizens, is to get the certified copy of the criminal record before the file is fully destroyed. So that's just um, something to think about. With these cases, you're not going to be the one filing the petition, but if you're working with a client who is just acquitted of a case and you're aware that that might be an issue, it's just something to keep in mind um, to advise folks that they may want to get a certified copy of their criminal record before the file is destroyed. And I think that's also part of the conversation happening with AOPC and the court systems about the implementation of the automatic acquittal piece. Um, I'm gonna take a pause for a second, just cause I know I've been talking a lot. You guys have been listening to a lot of people talk today and it's post lunch and people might be tired. So before I go on to my next 
slide. If you haven't already previewed and read the presentation, I'm going to ask you a pop quiz question that you can put an answer in the chat to just to get everybody a little bit more interactive here. So the next piece we're going to talk about is the pardon ceiling piece. And I just want people to take a guess and put it in the chat with your guesses that once people have gone through the pardon process and successfully gotten their pardon signed by the governor, what percentage of people do you think never get their record expunged after that? So they've gotten the pardon, but they never get their record expunged. Put in the chat what your guess is for what percent of people that affects. All right, let's see what we're getting here. I'm seeing 40%. 52%, 75%, there's some good guesses. Seeing if anybody got it exactly right, let's see. 85, 96. One more second to see if anybody hits it exactly on the head. <laughs> I wish I had a prize for you if you did, but let's see who got closest. <laughs> Okay, well, nobody seems to have gotten it quite right, but you're all kind of in the ballpark here. Uh, Pamela might have been closest here without going over if we're playing by prices right rules. <laughs> Tracy just got pretty close, uh, but I'll just go ahead and tell you guys the answer now. Thank you for playing. Uh, let's see. It's 60%. So for those of you who practice in the world of criminal records and either help people with pardons or just aware of the pardons process, you know that the pardon process can take upwards of four years from start to finish, from the time you put in an application to the time you get that signed order from the governor saying you're recommended for a pardon. So imagine folks waiting for four years to get that signed piece of paper and then not having their record fully cleared after that. <laughs> Um, and, you know, there are a lot of reasons why that would be, you know, folks don't know that they need to then go file an expungement. When I explain that to people, they're like, what? I just went through this process for four years to get this signed piece of paper. And now you're telling me I have to go to another court and file another petition to actually get this off my record. Like, it's kind of crazy, right? So a lot of people just don't know. Um, some people might know, but might not have access to being able to do that on their own, might not know how to find all of you wonderful people around the state and legal aid programs to be able to help them with it. So there are all kinds of reasons why that number is what it is, but it's a troubling number given how much work and effort people are putting into that process. So um, the good news is, enter 9122.2A4, if you're looking for a citation to write down, um, the law now says that if you have criminal history that has been pardoned, um, pertaining to a conviction which has been pardoned, it's added to the list of criminal history that is um, eligible for automated limited access. So you might be asking, if you got a pardon, why isn't it just fully expungible through an automated process? After all, we actually have really strong case law in Pennsylvania that says if you've been granted a pardon, you have a right to an expungement. 
this is just another one of those things that politically in Harrisburg ended up getting changed to ceiling because that's what happened in the legislative process. Um, but at the same time, for those 60% of the people who are just not having their record cleared at all, you know, sealing is definitely a better step than nothing. And as we'll talk about, you can still file a petition for expungement for folks. So at least it's taking these records automatically out of the public sphere for people without them having to take any additional steps. So the procedure for exactly how this is going to work is not quite yet. Um, we'll talk about the effective dates and go over them in a minute, but the um, Board of Pardons and AOPC have some time to figure this out. Uh, one thing that we have been told is that they do not um, expect this process to work in the same kind of automated way that Clean Slate does. Um, again, that's somewhat understandable and that this requires a different kind of interaction between the Board of Pardons and AOPC um, in terms of making sure people have actually been granted pardons before their cases are run. Um, so it should be happening through an automatic process, but not through the same kind of automated process that other clean slate information is sealed through. The Board of Pardons has also expressed to us that it's their position that this is also going to be prospective only, so that it'll only apply to people who are granted pardons going forward. We disagree with that. I don't think it's supported by the statute. And unlike the um, automatic expungement piece, you know, the Board of Pardons has a list of people who have been granted pardons going back in time. So it seems to us much more feasible to be able to do this retroactively. So stay tuned for more on that um, going forward. But ultimately, like I said, for those of you who are in the expungement work world, you will still have the ability to file expungement petitions for your clients. That's our plan at CLS is that we're still going to do full expungements for our clients who have gotten pardons. And the ceiling is really a helpful backstop for that 60% of people who, you know, might not make their way to a legal aid program or otherwise know that they needed to do something to get it off of their record. So the effective dates for all of these, we've kind of talked about this in drips and drabs throughout, but just to kind of go over it one more time, because there are a lot of moving parts to this law and different effective dates for different portions of it. So the law itself went into effect 60 days after signing, which was December 28th of last year. So what that means, as Sharon explained earlier, is that you can be filing ceiling petitions now for people who owe court fines and costs on their case. Um, but AOPC, the Board of Pardons, and the State Police have 365 days from the effective date to implement the other procedures, including automated sealing for court fines and costs and the pardon piece. Interestingly, our reading of the statute is that the automatic expungement for acquittals piece should already be going into effect, but we're not aware that that has actually started happening yet. Um, we're waiting to hear more from AOPC about getting that piece off the ground. Um, but the other pieces should all be in effect by December 28th of this year. And we'll start seeing, you know, the biggest impact of that will be the retroactive sealing of all of the cases eligible, um, conviction cases eligible where court fines and costs are owed. Okay. So next on the horizon, what's up next? So for those of you who do this kind of criminal records work, um, I'm sure you'll share the sentiment that as great as Clean Slate 1 was and as wonderful as Clean Slate 2 is, it's still incredibly frustrating and disheartening to talk to a client who has a 20-year-old drug felony conviction on their record 
and needs a job right now and to have to tell them, oh, you're going to have to wait four years to hopefully get a pardon in order to get that off your record. So the next on the horizon um, that we're hoping to see, what we're now calling Clean Slate 3.0, um, is a push to expand Clean Slate to felonies. Um, there are a few components that we're focusing on. The first is for auto sealing to include drug felonies in the auto sealing provision. Um, it seems like that makes a lot of sense. It seems more politically feasible given the current environment we're in. And we know from looking at data that it would have a huge impact on our clients around the state. So many people have drug felony convictions for very minor drug offenses um, that, you know, completely derail people's lives. So the impact of being able to do that through automation will be, if we're able to be successful in it, will be enormous. Uh, we're also hoping to expand petition-based sealing to include other types of felony offenses, like there are a lot of theft and forgery and other types of um, nonviolent offenses um, that we would love to see as part of an expanded petition-based process. And finally, we're hoping to be able to shorten waiting periods by adding felonies into the mix. You know, we don't want people to be waiting 20 years for a felony conviction and 10 years for a misdemeanor conviction. So hopefully we'll be able to um, use this as a prodding to shorten waiting periods across the board, um, to shorten the misdemeanor and summary waiting periods that are currently 10 years in the law, um, to put felonies at around 10 years, and to shorten some of the other waiting periods that currently exist in Clean Slate for if you have two or more M1s or four or more M2s. So just making everything a little bit more um, timely and in reach for our clients who, you know, have already waited a really long time for relief. Um, so I'm happy to talk more about sort of where we are and what we're thinking, just to say a word about where we currently are. Um, we're currently working on getting a draft proposal together and starting to talk to various stakeholders like the Pennsylvania DA's Association, we're also hoping to be able to do this campaign in conjunction with client and community-based groups of folks who have been directly impacted, especially by drug felonies, but other felonies as well. Um, so we're kind of at the starting line and just starting to put all these different pieces together. But one thing that would be incredibly helpful for the folks on this call who work with clients around the state is that um, the dynamics in Harrisburg being what they are, people don't always want to hear from us Philadelphians and our Philadelphia clients. Uh, they like to hear from people around the state. So if you're working with clients or community groups in your area and you feel like they would be good partners to work on this campaign, um, you know, we understand LSC restrictions being what they are, their limits to what folks can do. But if you do have clients or community groups who you feel like would be good advocates for this campaign, definitely feel free to reach out and let us know and to put us into connection with folks. All right. So I'll stop talking now for a little bit and see if people have questions about either the acquittals or pardons piece of the bill or if you have questions about the legislative campaign for Clean Slate 3.0 or ideas you want to share with us, uh, we would be happy to hear them now. Uh, Jamie, maybe I could pipe in with a, a couple of other comments while we're waiting sure. for questions. Um, one thing I wanted to mention is that the Board of Pardons becomes ever more lenient about what cases they will pardon. I was on a town hall with um, the Lieutenant Governor who is the um, chair of the Board of Pardons recently. And his message was, come apply, come apply, no matter what's on your record, come apply. Um, so know that um, if you have clients who are willing to wait four years, um, that 
that is looking like a really viable process right now. The other thing I wanted to mention is that um, how people's background checks look if they don't get cases that have been pardoned cleared. Um, now, in my experience, I've seen the Pennsylvania State Police record at least indicate that a case has been pardoned. So it still shows up, but next to it, it says hyphen pardoned. That is not true when court data. There is no indication whatsoever that a case that's been pardoned has been pardoned. And the court data is what makes up most of the privately generated background checks. Um, so a person who's gotten a pardon without that and, and gets first advantage to do a background check on them, um, it's going to look like nothing has occurred whatsoever to change their status. And that is why the retroactive application of Act 83 to Board of Pardons results is going to be really important and why we will keep working on that. Erica had a great question, which is whether we could ask the Board of Pardons to include plan contact info for expungement help when mailing out people's pardon decrees. It sounds like something they would probably be amenable to. I mean, for those of you who haven't been working as in the trenches on pardon stuff, kind of along the lines of what Sharon was just saying, we're kind of in a unique situation right now in that Lieutenant Governor Fetterman, who will not probably be in this role much longer, but uh, for the time he is with us, um, has been inc an incredible champion for the Board of Pardons. And then our current secretary, Secretary Brandon Flood, who he himself has been a recipient of a pardon and been through the process and really understands the barriers and burdens that it causes people, um, are both generally very receptive, you know, within reason and in recognition that there are other members of their board who might not be as agreeable to certain issues, but especially for things like um, Erica's suggestion that are kind of more procedural, they're very open to ideas and suggestions. So that definitely seems like something I could see them being on board with and, and definitely worth asking. Other questions, comments, thoughts? <laughs> Steve said, it would be nice if we could get the governor to act on the approved ones. It certainly would. Um, for those of you who might not be as familiar, um, once clients have already waited their three plus years to get before the Board of Pardons and get recommended, the Board of Pardons then needs to send that recommendation on to the governor for his signature. And within his office, they have their own vetting process for those cases that can sometimes take anywhere between six months to another year for folks. And I think that ends up feeling like one of the most frustrating aspects to people because you feel like you've gotten so far and you're so close, you've been recommended and then you end up waiting for a long time. And obviously the pandemic has made it a little bit more challenging for anything to move quickly in any of the systems that we work on. Um, but there has been some increased like media pressure and attention to that issue. And I think we just heard recently that an, another batch of pardon, if you're waiting on any clients um, for, to have their pardon sign, that another batch should be coming soon. So keep your eye out for that. But that's a great point. Any other questions, comments, thoughts? Okay. 